Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. What drives the rage behind mob mentality? Why do we find one person to put all the blame on? Well, Leviticus gives us an answer. You're listening to Scapegoat by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this evening is from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16. I will read verses 6, and I know it says through 22 in your pew Bibles, but I think I'm going to read all the way through verse 28. And tonight's scripture reading is, is, um, is the description of God's instructions for one of the most important feasts of the Old Testament, and that is the Feast of Atonement, or as you hear it called in, in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Uh, it was a once-a-year feast. It was a feast where the people who are sinful, the sacrifices made at that feast allowed sinful people to live in the presence of a holy God. And it's very elaborate. It's very complicated. It's probably more complicated than you think and remember. So as I read it, see if you can picture all the things that are happening on this great day. And pay special attention to the scapegoat because that's what I will focus on in my sermon, starting at verse 6 of chapter 16. Aaron, who's the high priest, is to offer a bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Now, see that little, you have a little footnote, a little C beside the word scapegoat, and I don't know what it says at the bottom of your Bible. I think it probably says, like mine, the meaning for this Hebrew word is uncertain. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in my sermon. So, Aaron casts a lot, one for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord, and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense. And he's to take them behind the curtain, holy of holies. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant so he will not die. It has to be so smoky in here that he can't see the Ark of the Covenant. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover and he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. This is to make atonement for him, not for the people, for him. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take that blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he shall make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. 
No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and now for the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. Now he's out in the courtyard. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on its head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and then the man shall release it into the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe with water in the sanctuary area and then put on his regular garments. And he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. And he also shall burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides and flesh and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them up must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, these are strange instructions, right? These are strange instructions. As you're listening to them, I mean, you all knew about, if you grew up in the church, you all knew about the Day of Atonement. But as I'm reading it, I know, and I can see it by the looks on your faces, you're thinking, yeah, this is, this is strange. And it's strange for you as church people. Imagine how it would sound to a secular person, a person who has no experience with anything in the Bible. They would hear these things and say, what kind of primitive bloodthirsty ritual is this? Who are these people? Who does stuff like this? Who goes around sprinkling blood on everything? Who takes an innocent goat and just pushes it out into the wilderness to die? Who does things like that? Well, I'll tell you who does things like that. We do. Modern people do things just like this. This ceremony, strange as it may be, speaks very much to the present reality of modern people. Let's talk about Steve Bartman. It's October 14th, 2003, game six of the National League Championship Series. The Chicago Cubs are up 3-2 in the series, 3-0 in the game. It is the top of the eighth inning, one out, nobody on. The Chicago Cubs have not won a World Series in almost 100 years since 1908, and now they are five little outs away, five bloopers, five little outs away from finally going to the series. 
And the, and the excitement in the stadium is palpable. If you watch that game on TV, and I did, you could feel the energy in the stadium. It was like a dam ready to burst. Mark Pryor was the Cubs pitcher, and he was pitching to Luis Castillo of the Florida Marlins, and Castillo hit a lazy pop fly down the left field line, and it was flying right down the borderline between the field and the grandstands, trending a little bit into the grandstands. Moises Lou, the Cubs left fielder, loped over and he got to the wall and it looked like he would fairly easily be able to make this catch by reaching into the stands and recording an all-important out. Sitting in the stands was Steve Bartman. And Steve Bartman did what thousands and thousands and thousands of baseball fans before him have done at games. He tried to catch the foul ball. He was a big Cubs fan. He had all his Cubs gear on. He reached up and he tried to catch the ball, which was coming right towards him. As he reached, his arm hit Moises Alou's glove. Moises Alou failed to make the catch. The ball fell to the ground and a groan went up from the stadium. Moises Alou started to jump up and down. He was so mad that he didn't catch the ball. He was mad at the fan. He thought there'd been fan interference, which is when the fan reaches into the field. No, there was no fan interference. The call stood. People watching the replay on the screen started to boo the fan. Steve Bartman sat in his seat holding his popcorn, looking straight ahead, looking like he wanted the world to swallow him. And the booze started cascading down all around him. Because he wasn't out, the at-bat continued. Luis Castillo got on base. He drew a walk. The next batter after him, Miguel Cabrera, hit a ground ball that was booted by Alex Gonzalez. He got on base in an error. The next batter got a single, the next batter got a double, and so on and so forth. And by the time the dust had cleared, the Chicago Cubs had lost the game eight to three and went on to lose that series. They did not get to the World Series. And as it became clear that they were going to lose, when they had been so close to victory, and now they were gonna taste defeat, the mood in the stadium began to get ugly. Now it wasn't just booze. Every time they showed the play on the replay screen, every time they showed Steve Bartman, now people were yelling obscenities. People were throwing popcorn at Steve Bartman. They were throwing beer at Steve Bartman. They were moving towards him as if they wanted to physically confront him. The police had to physically remove him from the stadium. It gets worse. The next morning on Sports Talk Radio, which is a very dark place, Steve Bartman was a byword. Everybody was talking about, who is that guy who took away our game? Somebody published his name, his address, and his phone number on the internet. He started getting death threats. Steve Bartman had to go into hiding. He had to leave everything. He had to go into exile. His whole life was turned upside down. Now, we have a word for what happened to Steve Bartman. We use it all the time in the English language. He was made a scapegoat. 
And we mean that word, we use that word to describe anyone who receives blame for a situation. But Steve Bartman was a scapegoat in the full Old Testament sense of this word. He didn't just receive blame. He was cast out from the camp. He was sent into exile to bear the anger, the rage, the frustration of Cubs fans everywhere. Leviticus 16 does not describe a primitive barbaric ritual. It describes a God-given process which the Lord gave to the people of Israel to, to deal with a very real passion, corruption, impulse that lives in the human soul. What impulse is that? In the atonement, Sari, what impulse, what sin precisely is that second goat addressing? What is it carrying out into the wilderness? When you dig into this ceremony and you look at it carefully, you see some interesting things and, and some peculiar things. So most of you came to the service, again, if you grew up in the church. And you would know about the ceremony of atonement. And if I stopped you in the narthex and said, you know, what happened at the, the festival of atonement? You would have said, yeah, a sacrifice. Blood was shed to atone for Israel's sins. And probably you would have thought that the animal killed was a sheep or a lamb because that's what most people associate with those kinds of sacrifices. But it wasn't. It was a goat. And in fact, there were two goats. The first goat was the one that you usually think of when you think of the Feast of Atonement. It was the one taken by the high priest. It was killed, and his blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant and on everything else. And as verse 17 says, the blood of that goat made atonement for the sins of Israel. Now you read verse 17, it seems like when the high priest comes out of the most holy place, atonement has been made for himself, for his family, and for all the people. That's what verse 17 says. So you might think that after verse 17, well, we're done here. Atonement has been made. But then you come out, the priest comes out, and you have this second goat. And he puts his hands on it, and all the sins of the people go on it, and he sends it out into the wilderness. Why the second goat? If atonement has always been made, why, why did God introduce this scapegoat? What, what function did the scapegoat serve in this ceremony? What was it doing? What was it bearing away? Now, a very acceptable answer here is, I don't know. <laughs> I promise you I'll do better than that, but... but we don't know, because God doesn't say. He just describes the ceremony, which is okay. He doesn't say, this is why I'm doing this, and this is why I'm doing that. He just, he just says, this is what you are to do. But I wonder if these two goats can be distinguished something like this. The first goat makes atonement before the Lord, vertically, right? That's why its sacrifice and its blood goes into the Holy of Holies, into the Tent of Meeting, right? Because the Tent of Meeting is the place where God meets with Israel. That's a vertical place. You meet with God there. The second goat, the scapegoat, is atoning for the sins and the miseries that go between the people. That's why its ceremony takes place in the camp and its sin is born outside of the camp. So the first goat is more dealing, making atonement for the sins before God, and the second goat 
is making, sin, making atonement for the sins that we commit against one another. Another way to think of this, the scapegoat is meant to bear precisely the kind of rage, the kind of hatred, the kind of sin that we see demonstrated in the Steve Bartman incident. Why do we human beings do those sorts of things to each other that I started out with in this story? What is in the heart of us humans that we want to pour out our frustration and our anger on one person or on one group of people? Whatever it is, it's pervasive. It's not just something you saw in Wrigley Field in 2003. You see it in middle schools, right? Kids come to middle school, they're starting to come into themselves and into their adolescence, and it's hard, and they're anxious, and they're fearful, and they're frustrated. And how do they often deal with that? They find somebody in the class, probably someone's a little different, a little bit on the margins, and they put their fears and their anxieties onto that person, onto the head of that person, by picking on them, marginalizing them, sending them out of the camp. It happens in the justice system. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer who works to exonerate people who are innocent. Uh, he works for a place called the Equal Justice Initiative, and he's found hundreds of people who have been proven innocent and have been set free. And when you read his book, Just Mercy, what you realize is how a lot of these people got into prison was something like this. A terrible, violent crime was committed in their community, something horrific. And what did that do to people in the community? It made them anxious, fearful, frustrated. What are we going to do? Something's got to be done. What, we got we to deal with this. And what do the police feel under those circumstances? Quite naturally, I've got to find someone. And sometimes, under the pressure of the mob and their anger and their fear, they find someone on, on relatively flimsy end evidence, they convict that person because the mob needs a sacrifice. The impulse we saw at Wrigley Field in 2003 is behind the spirit of lynching in the early 20th century. It's what drove the medieval pogroms that killed so many Jews. It's what motivated the Nazis to go out on the street in Berlin at Kristallnacht. When we human beings are unhappy with our life, when we are frustrated, when we just can't take it anymore, and we don't like what we see around us, something happens in us, some dark force rises in us, and we can very easily turn on one person or a group of people and make them a scapegoat. One more example. When I was maybe 12 years old, I remember seeing a newscast about the conflicts in South Africa. This was before Nelson Mandela was in power. So this is height of apartheid, super tense time. And the report, I think it was by CBC, I don't remember precisely, was reporting from the township of Soweto. And if you remember, that was a black township, incredibly poor, lots of violence and stress in that community. So the people were filled with frustration, filled with anger in that community. And the report showed what happened in that community when one young man who lived in the township was accused of collaboration. He was accused of giving secret to the apartheid police. 
Just the accusation was enough to make the rob rise up together and focus all their anger on that young man. And the report showed, after giving a warning about this thing in graphic, the report actually showed the mob chasing this young man who was running for his life. He did not run fast enough. The mob caught him and beat him to death. And they showed it on camera, which shocked me as a 12-year-old. What I remember as I watched that video were two things. First, you could see the moment when that young man died. You could see the spirit leaving his body. I don't know how else to explain what I saw. But I also remember the change in the crowd the moment that they knew he was dead. When the scapegoat died and the sacrifice was made, the crowd was appeased, the temperature went down, and they dispersed. That video taught me that there is something dark and angry in the human heart, something that wants blood, something that wants a sacrifice, and that dark thing also lives in me. In the Bible reading, I pointed out to you the translation issue that you see in verse 8, verse 10, and verse 26 about the word scapegoat. The word translated scapegoat is the Hebrew word azazel, and if Hebrew scholars are honest, they're not completely sure what that, that word means. It's translated scapegoat here, and that's a pretty good translation. I personally think that's the best they could do. But nobody's completely sure. Literally, this is how verse 8 reads. Take two goats. One will be for the Lord, and the other will be for Azazel. That makes it almost sound like Azazel is a being. And here's another interesting fact. In the intertestamentary period, so this is a long time later, intertestamentary period, Dead Sea Scrolls, Azazel became the name of a demon. Azazel was named as one of the angels who fell with Lucifer, a creature of violence and demonic ill will. And so there are some minority of interpreters who say, the right way to read this is, one of the goats is for the Lord, and the other goat is for that demonic, malicious force. Is that possible? Is that what's going on here? I mean, it's possible. Demonic forces are certainly real. But in the end, I personally agree with the majority of commentators who say I, they cannot imagine the Lord commanding a sacrifice to a demon, right? Israel was never supposed to sacrifice to Baal or to anything like Baal. How could the Lord possibly command a sacrifice to a demon? But I'm not surprised that hundreds and hundreds of years later, that energy of mob violence that we've been talking about tonight should be personified into a demon. Because when you see it in action, there is something incredibly dark. It's like a dark will is working. And I'm not alone in this observation. Some of you, if you're sports fans, you know that ESPN made a special about the Steve Bartman incident. Have, some of you have probably seen it, right? Do you know what they called that special? Catching Hell. ESPN was not trying to make a theological point, but they said more than they knew when they 
gave it that name. Jesus came to destroy the power of evil and destroy the power of the devil in all its forms. And he did that on his cross and through his resurrection. The work of Jesus on the cross destroys all forms of evil. Christ's death does not just fulfill one of these Old Testament rituals, it fulfills all of them. And this is what makes it so hard to describe what happened on the cross because all those Old Testament rituals, it's like all those streams, all those prophecies come to one place. For example, Christ on the cross is our Passover lamb. He's like the lamb that the Israelites slaughtered when they left Egypt. Uh, that's Exodus 12 and 1 Corinthians. But Jesus is also the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. That's a different lamb in the Old Testament tradition. That's the lamb who's slaughtered as a sin offering. That's not the Passover lamb. Jesus is also the goat in more ways than one. But he's the goat that of the first goat, right? From the atonement. That's what Hebrews says. He's the one whose blood is sprinkled and is a better offering. And now we can go into the holy holies for all time. Is Jesus also the scapegoat? Does Jesus become the scapegoat for us? Well, let's see. Is there any time during the story of his crucifixion where Jesus takes the rage of the mob? Yes. The mob gathers, and with the same fervor that it has had throughout history, says, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want Barabbas. Crucify him. And Jesus takes that rage onto himself. And not just their rage, our rage too, and all the rage of all the mobs throughout history, Jesus takes it on himself and he takes it outside the camp onto a hill outside Jerusalem and he dies and he drinks it all down. And now we have a place for our rage. Now we have a place to take our anger and we have a place to tell the world where they can take their anger. And that's so important. Because there's lots of leaders in this world, in all areas of this world, not just politics, lots of leaders in this world who play on that dark instinct of the mob. They sing to it. They try to bring it up in you. And they do it because they know that if they can get you into that mode, they can get you to do what you want. They can get you to move together. They can get your money, your votes, can keep you watching their show, listening to their program. It happens all the time. They want you enraged. I'm here to tell you that rage is a sin and a deadly one. Rage is not the same as anger. Anger is more complicated, right? As Christians, we can be angry and should be angry when we see immorality and injustice. We have to manage that anger carefully. Don't let the sun go down on it. Got to manage it but it's appropriate. Rage is different. Rage does not want to be managed. Rage wants a sacrifice. Rage wants to burn. Rage wants its satisfaction and it wants it now. Christians are never people of rage, never ever. We should feel the same way about rage that we do about pornography and adultery. 
In fact, the comparison of rage and adultery is a pretty good one as I think about it more. Both of them involve a corruption of something good into something evil, rage of positive anger, adultery of positive sexual feelings. And both of them have their pornographies. Lust, the pornography we're used to talking about, and then the pornography of rage, which is all around us and is way more socially acceptable. When that feeling starts to rise in us, and we start to feel like somebody needs to pay and they need to pay now, we go to Jesus. We give him our imprecatory feelings. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Give it to me. Give it to me. I'll take care of it. I'll straighten things out. I'll make everything new. We give him our rage, and in return, he gives us his body and his blood. So come to the table, take refuge in Jesus. Give him your rage, give him your frustration with this world and with your life. Let him give you the bread and the wine and let him make you new. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.